Christchurch, New Malden, 2nd of May 2021. Nathan Larkin speaking on the challenge. What does it mean to be a disciple? So we're starting a new series today on discipleship, walking in the footsteps of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple. But what exactly is a disciple? It's one of those terms you'll have heard plenty of times before if you come to church. But what does it mean? Well, on one level, the answer is simple. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. But in our culture, the word follower is often seen as quite negative. A follower is somehow seen as less uniquely you. We are, of course, unique. And we should each be blazing our own trail. And after all, a follower is the opposite of a leader. And our culture seems to preach the message that we are all called to be leaders in one way or another. In fact, leadership is an entire genre for books, for conferences, for seminars. People will pay really good money to be told about how they can be a leader. Interestingly, though, I've never seen a follower section in a bookstore. Have you? Now, followers as a term has gained a little more popularity in recent years because of social media. Instagram and Twitter enable people, both famous and who would like to be famous, to try to build their own brand by gaining followers. But again, the whole point is that you need to be a leader so that other people can follow you. So isn't it interesting that the primary word that is used for people who worship Jesus as Lord and Saviour is the word follower, disciple. Being a disciple is to be a follower, but not just in a casual way. We can follow a lot of things, sports teams, musicians, politicians, but to be a disciple of someone is to turn your life over to them and ask that their wisdom might help direct your entire life. So that's discipleship. It's following Jesus every day, becoming more and more like him. One great writer on discipleship put it this way. Discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the things Jesus said about what it means to be a follower of his and what that might look like if we try to put it into practice today. But as we begin to think about what it means to be a disciple in 2021, I thought it might be good for us to understand what was meant by the term disciple 2,000 years ago, around the time Jesus first laid down the challenge to follow him. Jesus was, of course, a Jewish rabbi with Jewish disciples living in a first century Jewish world. And at that time, most Jewish boys around the age of five or six would go to school for the first time to learn the Torah, which was what they called the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Pretty heavy stuff for junior school. Torah means the teaching or the instructions. And Torah was the centre, the foundation of their lives, and it was the focus of their entire educational system. The teaching would probably be held in the local synagogue and be taught by a local Torah teacher who'd be a rabbi. And this first level of education was called Beit Sefer. 
and that lasted until the child was around 10 years old. In Bates' affair, most children would memorise the Torah, and by the age of 10 be able to recite the Torah by heart, every word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorised. I can remember doing a scripture challenge as a child and struggling to memorise a single passage from the Bible. But what these kids could do was amazing. Now, we might be tempted to just say, hey, it was different times. Kids were completely different back then. And in many ways they were. But I only need to stop and think about how many of the words from the movie Frozen my three-year-old daughter has memorised to realise that there might be something else at play here as well. How many of us can recite the lyrics to our favourite songs? How many of us can quote the words to whole sections of our favourite movies? Now there is no question that times have changed and how we store information and use our brains has changed too. But I also think that it's important to acknowledge that our priorities have changed as well. In fact, our priorities have considerably shifted and that is hugely revealing. Now by the end of Bates' affair, which would be around 10 years of age, most children were no longer going to school every day. They would most likely have been apprenticing, learning the family trade. But the children who had shown the most promise, the boys considered to be the best of the best, they would keep going. They would continue their education into the next level, which was called Beit Talmud. In Beit Talmud, these best of the best, who were still going on, the ones with the most natural ability, would memorise the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. That's Genesis through to Malachi, memorised. It wasn't uncommon in that day for a good Jewish boy to have the whole Old Testament memorised by the age of 14. And by the end of this section of education, it was expected that almost all of the children would have now dropped out and moved into the family business. But yet again, there was an opportunity for the absolute creme de la creme, the best of the best of the best, to continue on to the final level of education, which was called Beit Midrash. But rather than them attending a synagogue or a school for education as they had up until now, it would now be their duty to seek out a rabbi that they really respected. And they'd apply to that rabbi to become one of his disciples. Now, when we use the word disciple, we often mean student. And in our very modern mindset, we generally assume that the role of the student is to fill their head with knowledge. It might seem fair then to assume that the role of the disciple was to grow to know what the teacher knows, to gain knowledge from the teacher. But a disciple is actually something far deeper. A disciple doesn't just want to know what the rabbi knows. A disciple wants to be like the rabbi and wants to learn to do what the rabbi does. Each rabbi would have their own interpretation of how to live out the Torah. For instance, honour the Sabbath. One rabbi might say, well, that means you can't go farther than the distance to the synagogue. While another rabbi might say, Mm, you, you can't go twice the distance to the synagogue because you have to return home, of course. You see, you have the law itself, 
But then the rabbi's interpretation of the rules that were required to obey the law is what became important. The rabbi's rules were called his yoke. And when you studied under a rabbi, it said that you took his yoke upon you. So when you went and applied to a rabbi to become one of that rabbi's disciples, what you wanted to do was you wanted to take that rabbi's yoke upon you so that you could learn to know what the rabbi knows in order to do what the rabbi does, in order to be like the rabbi. These teenagers, they would go up to a rabbi and they might say, Rabbi, I want to become one of your disciples. The rabbi would then grill them. He would ask them questions about Torah, questions about the prophets, questions about the oral tradition. Because the rabbi really wants to know, can this one sit in front of me? Can this one do what I do? Can this one spread my yoke? Does this one have what it takes? Now, if they were accepted to become a disciple, they would join the rabbi's followers, known as his Talmudim in Hebrew. And they would go everywhere with him. But not just to hang on his every word and learn theology from him. They followed him everywhere so that they could mimic what he did. As I said, they didn't just want to know what he knew. They wanted to do what he did and live as he lived. It's been said a student learns what his teacher knows, but a disciple becomes what his master is. So I want you to imagine a rabbi coming into town, a powerful rabbi, and he's got his little pack of disciples with him. And they're following on behind, doing everything they can to keep up with him. Because they're devoted, their lives have been given over to doing what their rabbi does. So if you're a disciple, by the end of the day, travelling with your rabbi, travelling on these hot, dusty, dirty roads, you're going to have whatever your rabbi has stepped in just kicked all over the front of you. Dust gets kicked up on the road, and as you follow behind, you're covered. And so this saying developed among the wise men and the sages. And they might say to a disciple, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. This was a scene that everybody had seen. They knew exactly what it meant to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. It meant that you were following him closely. Now you may be thinking, that's all very interesting. But what has it got to do with being a follower of Jesus today? Well, I think it has huge implications for us and how we understand what it is to be a disciple. Because being a Christian is so much more than believing the correct things. It is about becoming like our Rabbi Jesus, following him closely and learning his ways. Dallas Willard once said that the leading assumption in the church today is that you can be a Christian, but not a disciple. That being a disciple is an add-on, an option which the Christian is free to choose or omit, but it doesn't really affect whether or not you're a Christian. Some years before, A.W. Tozer had expressed a similar concern that throughout evangelical Christian circles, a warped but widely accepted concept had developed in which we humans can choose to accept Jesus Christ for what we can get from him. Because we need him as saviour. We want to be Christians, 
but not disciples. And hey, we may be on to something because we're aware of the difference between the two. As Bonhoeffer puts it, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. It is a massive commitment and it affects every aspect of our lives. A Jewish disciple would drop everything to follow his rabbi, leave their homes, families, potential careers, because they really believed that becoming like their rabbi was the best thing they could do. And yet we sometimes struggle to make it to church two weekends in a row. Tozer came up with a term to describe this type of approach to our faith. He calls it vampire Christianity. When we want what we can get from Christianity, but hold our commitment to real discipleship at a distance. And he claims that when we do that, in effect, we're saying to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or to have your character. We simply cannot neglect our calling to be disciples. We were created to be like Jesus, after all. This is our destiny. From the very beginning, God's plan was to create human beings to reflect his image. God announced his intention at creation. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and likeness. But does God really want us? Isn't discipleship reserved for the best of the best? Could that really be me? Well, who did Jesus choose when he was here on earth? Fishermen, tax collectors, ordinary people. If they were fishermen and Jesus calls them to be his disciples, then what we now know is that they're not following another rabbi. And if they're not following another rabbi, they're not the best of the best of the best. They didn't make the cut. And yet this rabbi, Jesus, comes down the beach and says to them, come, follow me. What he's really saying to them is, I think you could do what I do. He's saying you can be like me. Follow me and I will show you. Jesus chooses them because his movement is for everybody. It's for rich and for poor and for women and for men, educated and uneducated. He calls us all to be his disciples. And when he called those ordinary men, they changed the course of human history. As we finish, I want us to look at what I think is a really interesting example of what it looks like to be a disciple. We heard the story read about a time when Jesus' disciples are in a boat and it's the middle of the night and they're trying to get across the lake and the wind is blowing and it's getting choppy and Jesus comes walking out to them on the water and they're understandably terrified. But then Peter says, well, if it's you, then tell me to come to you. Now, that seems strange. Why is this Peter's first response? Why is Peter's first reaction? If it's you, then tell me to come to you. Because he's a disciple. He's oriented his whole life, devoted his whole life to doing what he sees his rabbi doing. Learning to be like his rabbi. So he sees his rabbi walking on water. And what's the first thing he wants to do? I want to walk on water too. I want to be like my rabbi. So Peter gets out of the boat and he starts walking on the water. But he starts to sink and he yells out, Jesus, save me. 
The text reads that Jesus immediately caught him and said, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, I always assume that Peter doubts Jesus in this moment. But Jesus isn't sinking. Who does Peter doubt? I think Peter doubts himself. He loses faith in himself that he can actually be like his rabbi. But Jesus wouldn't have called him if he didn't think that he could be like him. Jesus even reminds his disciples of this at one point. He says to them, wait, you didn't choose me, remember? I chose you. The rabbi doesn't choose you unless the rabbi thinks that you can do what he does, that you can be like him. And over the next few weeks, as we look at what it means to follow Jesus, to learn from what he said, to practice what he commanded, and most importantly, to become like he is, it might be easy to think that this is all just too hard. It's asking too much. Perhaps like Peter on the waves, we think, can I really do this? But Jesus has chosen us to follow him. And through the power of his spirit, we can become the people he made us to be. Peter stepped out of the boat because he wanted to be like his rabbi. And our boat is whatever represents safety and security to us aside from God himself. Our boats are whatever we are tempted to put our trust in instead, especially when life gets a little stormy. Our boat is whatever keeps us so comfortable that we don't want to give it up, even if it's keeping us from joining Jesus on the waves. It's our boat, and that is whatever pulls us away from the high adventure of extreme discipleship. But God believes in us, in you, in me. I mean, he must have had faith in us because he leaves it all in the hands of these disciples. What's the last thing Jesus says to them? He says, now you go, make more disciples. He leaves it all in the hands of this ragtag bunch. And they do it. Through the power of his spirit, they do it. What if we actually can be the kind of people that God created us to be? What if he actually believes that? What if he actually believes that we can be the kind of people who look like Jesus? I once heard a story about a father and son who arrived in a small western town looking for the father's uncle who they'd never met before. Suddenly the father pointed across the square to a man who was walking away from them and he exclaimed, there goes my uncle. His son asked, how could you know that when you've never seen him before? But he replied, son, I know it's him because he walks exactly like my father. If we're committed to following Jesus, then the world should know us by our walk. Being a disciple being Jesus' apprentice is not a matter of knowing all the right doctrine. It is the orientation and quality of our entire existence. Being Jesus' apprentice is the greatest opportunity any human being will ever have. Living as Jesus' disciples, we are learning from him how to lead our lives everywhere we are, in every activity we engage in. And Jesus believes that we can do it. He is walking down the beach towards you and he's calling out, come and follow me.
what will your answer be? May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi.